I think that's what Judah's actually doing more so than what I, I don't think he's focusing so much on the, the, the intruders as much as he's focusing on the, the faithful and, and giving them hope. God will do it. You avoid them and let God deal with them. John says something similar. Uh, Peter says something similar is that don't focus so much on the negativity. Focus on what God has done for you. And let God deal with the, the, the sinful. The sin Rob, thank you, sir, for joining us on Faith in the Fold today. It is a pleasure to have you with us this afternoon. Thank you, Kevin. It is good to see you again after uh, your transition to, to, to Texas, and I'm glad to hear things are going really well for you down there. So thank yeah. you for having me on your podcast. Yeah, happy to. Happy to. Rob, we've been uh, we've been friends for a while now and uh, have overlapped in uh, even in school together, I think, at some, yeah, yeah. some different uh, times. So help us get to know you a little bit before sure. we dig into what we're going to talk to about, what uh, or talk to today. Where are you at these days? Uh, right. Where have you been to school? What uh, what might people know about you? All right. Sure, sure. Um, let's start with my educational background, because that kind of led me to where I am. Um, so I went to school at Harding University, which is where Kevin went to school as well. Yeah. Uh, we were off for, what, a couple of years or so, I think we figured out? I, I think um, I, I was there from 04 to 08. I think you okay, were there so, like a whole yeah. generation before. Yeah, generation before you, so to speak. But uh, Harding University, majored in Bible, and I'm one of those kids that I always knew I wanted to be a preacher. Um, and then when I went to Harding, I discovered I wanted to be a professor. <laughs> um, and I, <laughs> I remember sitting in a psychology class, first day, wait, first day of class, freshman year, walk in, professor says, before we talk about the class, I want you to watch a film clip. And it was the, uh, the, the examination scene in A Few Good Men where Tom Cruise cross-examines um, um, uh, uh, Jack Nicholson. Mm -hmm. And it's the whole, I want the truth scene. You can't handle the truth. It's, it's that whole scene. And um, after the professor turns off the clip, he goes, that was psychology in action. I went, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. I want to be a professor when I grow up. <laughs> so um, I started, you know, obviously training for ministry, but I always had it in the back of my mind, professor. So I went to graduate school, graduated from the Austin Graduate School of Theology, now the Lipscomb University Austin campus um, with my MA degree in 04, went mm -hmm. to Lubbock Christian for my master's degree in preaching in 07. Um, and then started getting into, um, I was in ministry and went into hospital work in um, 06 and 07 and wanted to become a chaplain for about four years um, in between some church work and helping out a couple churches. And then in 2009, I started, I uh, got a call from a friend of mine, a guy I had met uh, here at Kentucky Christian University saying, I've got a couple Bible classes that are going to be available. Would you like them? And I went, sure. What are they? He said, it's a pastoral epistles class and a gospel of John class. And I went, I can never get away from the Gospel of John. I had the Gospel of John in undergraduate, in graduate school. I had it at Lubbock in a preaching class in a Bible. I was like, I cannot get away from this. I had all these notes. So I taught for two years part-time doing Bible and preaching and ministry and communication. I taught speech for a year. And then finally in 2011, they offered me a full-time job, and I've been ever since. And so now the, the official title is, and it's going to be like go off the, go off the, 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 the page a little bit, um, associate Professor of Preaching and Ministry, Director of Graduate Bible Programs, and Dean of the School of Distance and General Education at Kentucky Christian University. 
That's a lot of hats. It is. It's a very, my business card is in like is in smaller smaller font than everybody else's on the titles. I'm saying everybody like an eight by eleven or eight by ten. This is not a headshot. It's a business card. Yeah, um, I also teach part time for Johnson University in Tennessee mm-hmm. and for Seminary out in California. Yeah, obviously for, online. Friend, yeah, friends of the podcast uh, might recognize Johnson University, uh, the esteemed Dr. Rafael Rodriguez, <laughs> who did uh, the in the episode with me on Romans in this series, uh-huh. is a full time professor at Johnson University there in Knoxville, Tennessee. Beautiful campus, absolutely. Yeah, it is. It's a very. They, they were very smart about how they built that campus. Yeah. Very true. Yeah, planned it well right off the. Um, well, what's the river there behind campus? The French Broad is that it? I think so. Yeah, that um, you got to be careful. You know, who you say that to these days, it might sound not very PC. But, <laughs> That's uh, true. Anyway, so Rob, you had, uh, and you uh, you also did some work, right? Uh, you got your doctorate of ministry from Harding oh, yeah, School yeah, of Theology? Yeah, yeah. yeah, forgot about that. So I did my doctorate at the Harding School of Theology, which is actually where you and I really kind of started intertwining a little bit. Yeah. Because um, I, I, I had I had I had actually started at the grad school and then left. That's when I went to Austin, came back for my doctorate. And did uh, preaching, and also wound up uh, by by grace of just taking classes. Got a an and New Testament emphasis in my doctorate, so I get to flex those muscles today. Yeah, a little bit. that's right, that's right, that's the good stuff right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I had uh, I had the good fortune of being able to uh, quote unquote major in uh, Doctor Oster and Doctor Black uh, ah, for, my, yeah. for my MDiv. So I had both of them for my New Testament classes, actually. Yeah. yeah. And if everything goes well, I will. Uh, I've I've had Doctor Black for Gospel of Mark, and okay. uh, at the time of a recording, I have uh, Doctor Oster on the books to do First oh. Corinthians with us. So well, good, well, good. That'll the, be a good episode. These are obviously not recorded in order uh, <laughs> because I've already gotten, I've already gotten, you know, several of uh, Paul's prison letters recorded, yeah. but you know, haven't released them yet. And so, anyway, so like how commentaries get done. <laughs> right yeah. yeah you like tackle one chapter out of order because it's the stuff you know the stuff you know the best that's right yeah but rob it is a treat to uh to get to work with you today we are going over some of the lesser known less popular books yep. in the new testament canon second peter and jude two books that are just uh, honestly People don't think they're very exciting, but there's a lot of cool stuff in here. We're going to break these wide open today. They definitely, they definitely vibe with the weird Christian Twitter kind of stuff. I mean, they are. Um, I have students who are scared who would rather preach Revelation than Jude just because of the content in Jude. I'm like, guys, this is a lot of fun to work through. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. These are what you would call deep cuts, right? Yeah, you know, the yeah, Gospel of John, the Gospel, Gospel of John, Mary. yeah. That's all the stuff, stuff that you have to, you really have to know your scripture in order to interpret these books really well. Yeah. Well, and, and not just, not just scripture in terms of like Old Testament scripture. That's you true. need to know what some other Jewish persons <laughs> thought about who wrote things that yeah. didn't quite make it into our canon. Yeah, that's it's true. in some other people's canons. <laughs> so, yeah. We're going to, we're going to get into some of this stuff. Let's start off. Big picture question, though, I've been asking this question to kind of get everybody sort of focused in on, on what we're doing. We're talking about Second Peter and Jude, and 
we'll talk about them together, mm-hmm. right? When it makes sense to talk about them yeah, together yeah. and then individually as it makes sense to make, uh, as it makes sense to highlight, you know, different emphases here and there. What is the genre, the, what is the literary type sure. of Second Peter and Jude? And what does that tell us about maybe the aims for each of these or how we're supposed to understand them? Sure. Help us kind of work through these issues first. All right. Well, both of them obviously fall into the category of, of epistulae or a letter. Um, they come in, the, you know, make sure everybody's orienting correctly. These are at the last little bit of the Old Testament in the general letters or the Catholic epistles. And it's a part of the New Testament that people looked at and went, the only thing they have in common is they're all about, they're about Jesus. They're not very long, and they're by guys who claim some kind of connection to Jesus, mm-hmm. whether as a servant or maybe a half-brother or something like that, and so that's how they kind of get clustered together. And the old argument was always, well, is it an epistle or is it a letter, and does that really make a lot of difference? Um, and, of course, if you, you probably talked about this already, or at least you will on somebody else's podcast, Dyson's old theory is that the epistle was the very formal letter, like Romans, whereas the letter is like Philemon, and it's more informal. Yeah. And I side with Luke Timothy Johnson is like, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. A letter is a letter. And yeah. um, a letter, it's, me- it's meant to replace the physical presence of the preacher or the communicator. That's right. Um, you know, and I, and, I, and I like that theory because that, that gives a lot of leeway because really Romans, and I don't know if Raphael talked about this, I can't remember, is really a fundraising letter to a lot of degrees. <laughs> You know, I know he didn't describe it as that, but I can see in a sermon he preached about how that that Paul's going off to Spain and wants to wants to raise some funds. So he's talking to the Roman Christians. Here's who I am. And he lays out his theology in grand and glorious detail. And then says, oh, by the way, you can cash at me at your at your leisure. You know, and you've got then you've got James, which is writing to Jewish Christians about staying away from false teaching. Which becomes a consistent theme of those general letters of First Peter, Second Peter, the letters of John, and the letters of Jude all deal with, in much smaller detail, staying away from false teaching. Yeah. And so what I like about them is their genre is that they really are letters. They're I mean they're they're the epistolary. They're the written communication, written because I can't be there to warn you or to guide you. So I'm writing a letter in advance, hoping that that will that that will settle the uh, the concerns that you may have. Yeah. But individually, however, this is what's fascinating about them is they are definitely very divergent mm-hmm. in terms of what they do. I need to talk about their aim. Um, Second Peter is what Scott Colley, my colleague here at KCU, calls a last will and testament. And the uh, idea last, is that, at least said last yeah. will and testament. Yeah, last will and testament. Mm-hmm. And the idea behind that concept, it's, it's, a, it's a common uh, Greek rhetorical style of the sage is getting ready to die. He knows that he's dying mm-hmm. and he wants to impart his last final thoughts. Okay. You know, and so he, here it is, whether, and of course the debate is, does Peter write it? Does Peter not write it? I'm an old fashioned kind of guy. I side with Peter writing it because I don't have any reason to discount that, but I know that that's always a debated issue. Let me, um, let me, let yeah, me pause yeah. you just for a second there, because as this has come up in some of these discussions that I've had mm-hmm. and I'm, I've got my audience in mind here, sure. It, it surprises some people who don't have formal biblical studies training. It surprises some people to know, well, what do you mean? Why is there any kind of controversy about, did this person actually write this? One of the reasons why some people say First Peter and Second Peter might not be written even by the same person yeah. is that according to guys who know Greek 
mm-hmm. better than I do, and I, I know Greek fairly well, but according to guys who know Greek better than I do, the Greek style of First Peter mm-hmm. is very polished. Yeah, It's very rhetorically sophisticated. That's actually one reason, uh, as I think I mentioned with Dennis Edwards in our episode mm-hmm. that uh, he and I did on First Peter, that's one reason why some people think, well, no, this uneducated Galilean fisherman could not have known that. I mean, oh, yeah, okay, maybe, right? Like there's a lot of ways that one, somebody can learn, and two, uh, I believe I am representing a, at least a fairly large minority of scholars mm-hmm. who would say in first peter chapter 5 i think verse 12 he says i've written this letter through sylvanus yeah, or yeah. silas which is a way of indicating this is the guy who has helped me shape this letter it was a standard practice but that style of greek in first peter is different different enough to raise mm-hmm. some eyebrows from second peter yeah, it's, honestly, it's just as likely that either Peter could have written it himself mm-hmm. and, and tried to sound as sophisticated as possible, or he <laughs> had somebody else write it because it's, it's, it's not, you're not obligated to mention the scribe or secretary. Paul kindly does that in Romans 16, uh, 22, I think, uh, ter- or Tertius. Not even Paul. Tertius just sort of inserts himself in that letter. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. But for again, for folks who are like, well, what do you mean? You know, why wouldn't you write this? Like, I, I, th- I think they could come from the same person, although they might have had other people sort of help sure. present the yeah. letter. Yeah, my, that, the way I the way I look at it nowadays as well is that when I write for an academic journal, I don't write the same way I write for Christianity today. Yes. Yes. You know, I don't write the same way when I'm writing a paper for an academic conference. I don't write the same way as I wrote for for this. I mean, there's. There's no footnotes in my notes that I plan for this. You know, there's no, there's no that kind of thing. And I think that that's the same argument for First Peter is very polished. Second Peter is very text driven, like you know, texting on a phone kind of thing. Sure. You know, there could have been emojis in the original concept of Second Peter. You know, maybe James Edward Walters maybe could figure figure out some kind of manuscript evidence of like you know emojis in ancient text or something. (laughs) But uh, so part of that I think is that Peter. And that's why I think this last one testament idea is really was really good. Mm-hmm. Peter knows his life is coming to an end, and he is very concerned for his churches and wants to impart some final wisdom to them. Yeah. Um, which is very Jewish in nature. And I found this sure. interesting when I was thinking about it, is that generally this was a sage thing, is that the the sage had um the I can't remember who mentioned this. I think it was Bachman mentioned the trip to heaven concept. Time. is that they know their time is coming to an end they're replaying their life over in their head and here's the last five things to give you mm-hmm. and second peter seems to fall into that category um yeah. june on the other hand is much more rhetorical and polemic um a polemic is obviously a, an argument against someone or something kind of like luther's 95 theses against the catholic church or even animal farm by george orwell is a polemic against socialism and communism sure Good you analogy, know? yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, yeah, to kind of figure out what it, what it might look like for us today. Um, but it's also very rhetorical. Um, it's extremely rhetorical and um, and follows the Greek rhetorical structure very, very well. What I think, honestly, is that Jude is probably a great evidence of a Christian sermon. Um, maybe what Christian preaching would have sounded like mm-hmm. in, the, in that Greek style, mm-hmm. especially what we know of later in the second and third centuries where um, Christian orators were still using the Greek concept of, of rhetoric. 
that that um, that Jude might have been an early example of that. Um, yeah. Another last will and testament. This just reminded popped in my head. Second Timothy is Paul's last will right. and testament to a lot of to a lot of degree. I was thinking about that as yeah. well. Yeah. And then um, and then for the the polemic, the rhetorical polemic, Philemon or Hebrews. Mm-hmm. You know that idea of that idea of being very expressive in terms of the the homiletics in terms of the pastoral care of the congregation. There's also what Bachman calls text within interpretation concept. Mm-hmm. I know you want to get to this is that the writer uses other biblical texts or non-canonical texts, at least what we would consider, right. to yeah. interpret canonical texts mm-hmm. in order to give a, a more full picture of what's really going on. So that's yeah. kind of what the, the genre, what, they, what the aims of the book are that, that, I, that I think are important for us to know today. Yeah, I like that idea of last will and testament for, mm-hmm. for Peter, because uh, as we will allude to here in just a little bit, um, or as we're going to a little bit more detail here in just a little bit, it was a very common Jewish practice for someone to, uh, to write some sort of presentation like this. Mm-hmm. Either speaking for themselves or speaking on behalf of a famous person in the past, mm-hmm. there's yeah. a series of works, Jewish works, that are called the Testament of yep. Abraham, Testament of you know any one of the patriarchs or something mm-hmm. along those lines. Mm-hmm. They're very useful reading, not canonical, in, not, canonical. Uh, right. not in our older New Testaments, right? Uh, not even in the uh, collection known as the Apocrypha, which would be in a Catholic canon, but still very useful for understanding Jewish thinking at a time that was admittedly historically removed from the actual you know, patriarchs. Yeah. But still very useful to kind of get us, give us an idea of, all right, you know, how we're, if you've got one final message to give, you know, mm-hmm. what are some common things you would do? How would you, how would you do it in a way that's persuasive? And so, yeah, that makes perfect sense for um, for all that. So, yeah. Okay. For folks who are kind enough to watch, Rob <laughs> has already warned us <laughs> about how his lights might go off at some point. Actually, the the lighting wasn't bad because you were you were fairly well lit from the front. That's true. I might let so, it go next time if it goes it, long it, enough. If it, if it goes next time, that, that's what happens with these uh, with these green campuses, right? <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. I did a, I did a webinar for um, for a group a couple of weeks ago, and it was a video webinar, so it wasn't a podcast. It was going to be an actual live. And I warned them, we have about twenty eight minutes till my lights are going to go off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, if you see, if you, at any point in the rest of the video, you see Rob just reaching back behind him and, and waving. He's trying to catch the motion sensor on his light switch by his door. <laughs> but, but yeah, going back to what you just wrote the idea of the testaments, but it also helps us understand the rabbinic nature of that that permeates the new testament as well yeah because those testaments were very rabbinical and the the shift of jewish scholarship from about the from the prophets to the more wisdom writings mm-hmm. you know in the what we call the silent period which is a really unfortunate name because a lot of really great stuff gets written there in that time yeah intertestamental period mm-hmm. that's what's influencing jesus and peter and john and paul and it comes out in, in books like jude and second peter more so than it does in, in paul's writings because paul's writing for more greek audience whereas Peter and Jude and James reading writing for more Jewish audience. It seems mm-hmm. to be. Yeah, that's like I think that's fair. Yeah, and you are right to to comment on this this four hundred year period between you know from conveniently called like from Malachi to Matthew. Basically. Malachi to Matthew. Yeah, I think it's fair to say 
that this period was extraordinarily significant for folks, even like Jesus himself, because you will search high and low with to no avail in the new test in the old testament for a synagogue. That's true. It, you're just not gonna find one in there. That's true. But where does Jesus kick off his ministry? In a, well, synagogue. In a synagogue. Yeah. Okay. So like <laughs> Jesus, Jesus is Jesus is able to roll with these kinds of things that developed in this very period. And Paul does the same thing. Where does Paul start his ministry and on his uh, missionary journeys? He goes to a synagogue. And I think that James is caged within the synagogue concept. I, I think uh, that makes perfect sense, yeah. right? Because yeah. when James mentions, if you see if you see somebody d- dressed nicely come into your meeting. The Greek word he uses there is synagogue. It does. It does. Not church. Not church. So, anyway, <laughs> but yeah, that's um, yeah. Or maybe we can do something like with that next uh, Stone Camel Journal conference or something. Sure, sure. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> All right. So we've got kind of a sense of these are letters that sort of serve as substitutes for the author's physical presence, right? Yep. You, um, you know, honestly, much like a Zoom call or, you know, <laughs> webinar or something like that these days. And, um, you know, we've talked about the aims of the book, uh, you know, maybe a last will and testament or, you know, some kind of uh, some kind of warning. You mentioned the word polemic, right, which mm-hmm. you helpfully yep. described as as an argument to, or of some sort to, to really push back against a particular mm-hmm. um, false teaching or something like that. Um, let's maybe work through some of these. Uh, could we start with, uh, or we start with whichever one you want to start with? Uh, what are some major emphases of either Second Peter or Jude? Is there some overlap, and what are maybe some differences? Yeah, too? I think there is some. I think there is some overlap in both of them. Um, let's start with Second Peter first, because I think that, uh, like I said, I think thinking about them canonically is kind of the way that I is the way that I thought sure. about for today. So Second yeah. Peter comes first, and, um, and I think there's three major emphases in second peter actually really four one of which is related to jude okay. the three that are really related to second peter are one is the doctrine of god is that peter really wants people to be aware of who they're serving mm-hmm. who they've given their lives to um and also the fact that that nothing is going to happen outside of god's will and that's kind of really a big part of this is that that peter wants the christians to know what we're seeing is god is not aware, is not unaware of what's going on god is not unable to, to intervene what's going on. Um, God is letting some things happen because they will ultimately serve God's greater will. Yeah. You know? And so we see, I think it's like Peter, this idea that God really, that, that God's divine power, which he talks about in chapter one, it's verse three. Um, that will ask, that will be what, what catalyze, what catalyzes history from here moving forward is that will be the power that which we as the church live through will be God's divine power. Um, secondly, is the, the 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 doctrine of the eschatology, the the idea of the the, the coming of our Lord, which he talks about at the end of chapter one, is that you know, there was this expectation in the first century that Christ was coming back any day now. Yeah, and there was that. We see that especially in I always tell I always tell people that Paul changes his view on on the eschatology from First Thessalonians to First Corinthians. You know, First Thessalonians it's it's people looking up in the clouds waiting for Christ to come back. And Paul says, no, we've got work to do. But by 1 Corinthians, it's more like it could happen at any day now. Mm-hmm. And it was his expectation that Christ was going to return by the end of the first century, which is, a, you know, which relates to 1 John and Revelation and that kind of that kind of discussion. And Paul, or excuse me, Peter here is, um, is I think, in light of the transfiguration, 
is trying to help people make sense of that that concept. Yeah. Like what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration? Here, Peter is watching, and he doesn't understand. Then, I think he's had he's had thirty years to work this, 30, 35 years to work this out. Yeah. And now he sees Jesus on the mountaintop there with Moses and Elijah as the culmination of all that had come before him, and the reality that that someday we're going to see Christ for who He really is. And we need to be prepared to be in his presence because the disciples were not prepared for that event, which is why God says, listen to what he's saying and, and follow him. So that way you can be ready for when this actually happens again. Yeah. Um, in chapter two, he talks about the judgment of humanity coming at some point in his mind, I think the near distant future. <laughs> and so there's some preparation here, much like the, much like I think the, the, um, the prophets of old be ready for God's judgment. Yeah. which was a physical in nature at that time. But in here, Peter is, is channeling that going, it's going to be a spiritual judgment. Mm-hmm. Along with that is the, I think also Peter talks about the doctrine of salvation and how it's practiced through our piety. Um, the idea of how we live faithfully. That's one thing that I think Peter gets knocked about is that he's very pious. Whereas Paul seems to be a bit more bodacious, a bit more, you know, a bit more kind of out there a little bit. He shaves when he wants to, he eats what he wants to. Peter kind of pulls back a little bit and is kind of almost reverted from what we see when he's being offered the tent, the, 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 the blanket of food in Acts 10. Yeah. Almost kind of almost gone back a little bit to more of that reserved Jewish piety of quiet, humble, submissive service and practice. But yet because he understands the value of salvation mm-hmm. is that Christ does call us to a different kind of lifestyle. He talks about this several places throughout chapter two, um, that idea that we need to serve God faithfully. Be attentive to the teaching that's that's shining in the dark place. We talked about wisdom literature a little bit ago. Mm-hmm. Paul Peter kind of channels that the idea of um, of following God's word where where God's word leads us, and it might lead us into a reserved place. And I always remember this line from Thomas Akempis um, from his imitation of Christ about how don't be the person who's out there on the front of everything, who's traveling, who's being seen. Be the Christian who's back in their prayer closet, carefully meditating on God's word. In seeking the justice of God's spirit. And I think Peter's kind of setting the tone of that that more pious stream to use Richard, uh, use, uh, Richard Foster's concept of streams of spirituality. Yeah. Um, that, 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 that quiet, contemplative, pious stream of Christian belief of, I'm just going to live faithfully in my little confines and let God use me as God needs me. Yeah. I like I think the fourth major theme that then, that then segues into Jude is the idea of false teachers, false teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the New Testament actually deals with false teaching, whether we realize it or not. Um, we don't always think about that because we think of Paul talking about rejoicing Lord always in Philippians. Yeah, he talks about false teaching in chapter two. You know, Colossians is all about defending our faith against false teaching. Yeah, and he you know, lists and, a number of things that you know that yeah. people talk about there. Yeah. Yeah. And then and, and then almost all the general letters deal with false teaching to some degree. Um, you got John dealing with a proto-gnostics you've got jude which we'll talk about in a minute you've got um james dealing with with interlopers and and both peter and jude deal with false teachers jude actually calls them intruders mm-hmm. intruders in the faith and that's so that's kind of what we see the last theme of peter that segues into jude is this idea of false teaching and making sure that we give validity to a apostolic teaching and the succession of interpretation that um you know, our day and time, we want to go so far, and what's the new thought? And I think there's a place for contextual theology. There's a big place for contextual theology. You know, how do I, as a, you know, as a, uh, reading the Bible as a 40-something-year-old, um, you know, 
Um, with, I think you want to cut out there, Rob. Older than I was when I was in graduate school. Yeah. You know, I'm older than I was. My life has changed a lot. I, my kids, to you know, I, when I was reading um, the Gospel of John in graduate school, when I was burping my son on my shoulder when he was six months old, he's 17 years old now. Mm. You know, and, and how I have changed in that time. I've grown, I've aged, I've grown in my faith. I've changed my views on some things. So there's a place for contextual theology for, you know, for, for, for people coming from their cultural background to read scripture going, how do I as a Korean American or African American woman or whatever, how do I understand scripture? There's also a place for the, the, the orthodox interpretation that has been consistent throughout time that I go, but I can't supersede church history to a degree. I think Paul or Peter, I'm, I'm sorry, if I'm, I'm going to do that a lot. I know. Peter um, is saying, give, give credence to the apostolic tradition. You know, John and Peter and Paul and, and James and, and, and those who've come before us that, that lived this, that saw Jesus teach, that, that were in the boat with him when he calmed the storms. We have, to give credit, we have to give credence to, first of all, Christ, then to the apostolic succession of that. And then, then we have to figure out our interpretations in light of all of that. And both Peter and Jude are dealing with folks who are going outside of that, as, as does Paul and as does James, and as does the Hebrew writer to a small degree, people who are going outside of that that early canon, proto-canon perhaps, maybe. Yeah. Um, with Jude, I think there's a couple of other ideas that we see. One is the, the promise of judgment, that those who have been teaching falsely will be judged accordingly. Um, it was funny, I actually um, just recorded my Sunday night Bible study before this and talked about Nahum chapter 1 where Nahum promises that God will judge the Assyrians for their lack of faithfulness. And there's this consistent theme throughout both the Old and New Testament that those who have lived falsely, lived unjustly, have taught incorrectly, will be punished at some point. And that we as faithful Christians must prepare ourselves to be refined so that we can withstand judgment. And Jude talks about that. Yeah. Jude also talks about a piety to it, but in a different way. He talks about a discipline-oriented faith, which I, what I love about Jude. Mm -hmm. um, when I talk about preaching to my students, I want them to be very concrete and practical. Um, there's obviously a place for the, the, the exposition of scripture, but I, but I tell them it's got to make sense to the, to the, to the butcher baker and candlestick maker to use Luther's words. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I've said it too many bedsides when folks go, but God said, or how do I make sense of this today? And, and we have to be able to say, here's how prayer, here's how you actually do prayer. Here's how you do confession. Here's how you do evangelism. And Jude is actually very helpful in that concept. He talks about treasuring God's word. He talks about prayer. He talks about showing mercy to those who have fallen away. Very, actually, surprisingly, very practical to those last few verses of Jude. Yeah. And then we see what I think, and we can go ahead and maybe get into this now, is his, what I call his value of othered scripture. You know, the scriptures that we look at and go, I don't quite understand where this is coming from. <laughs> right. Yeah. But you knows, but you're reading, but, you know, this is text. This is scripture, scripture using at least the lowercase s word for a moment. Mm. This is scripture that you should be familiar with. Yeah. And we and it, it helps us know who God is better. And as a reminder for us as Christians is maybe not to discount stuff too quickly. So I think those are some of the big themes that I see in um, in Second Peter and Jude. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, while we're on it, yep. Um, I've got a Bible pulled up to Jude verse eight, and um, 
he is uh, he's railing against these um these people who who commit evil mm -hmm. and in verse eight he says um yet in the same way these dreamers also defile the flesh reject authority and slander the glorious ones and then he gets into sort of what that last phrase means there starting in verse nine but when the archangel michael Mm -hmm. Contended with the devil and disputed about the body of Moses, he did not dare to bring a, con a condemnation of slander against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And he goes on, uh, it kind of goes on similarly. And um, <clears throat> uh, let's see. Yeah, in, uh, in verse 14. Same. It was also about these that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, and then he quotes, Oops. quotes uh, something from Enoch that we uh, that we don't really have in, yeah, in the Old Testament. Yeah, that's true. So Judah's alluding to some things that he seems like it, his audience would know about. Would know about, but we but we look at him going, what? What's he talking about? Rob, yeah. help us out. What's he talking about here? So the first reference in verses 8, 9, um, 8, 9, 10, there's the, is a, 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 a apocryphal, apocryphal source called the Assumption of Moses. Mm -hmm. We're not really for sure when it's written sometime in that intertestamental period. And what happens is that at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses obviously dies um, and God buries him. But he's told he can't into the land of Canaan because he had spoken to, he had struck a rock rather than speaking to it. Right? You guys remember that story. Mm -hmm. Um, and as a result, God says, you cannot enter the land of Canaan. And so at the end of Deuteronomy, God brings him up on a mountaintop and shows him the land of Canaan and says, you have get to see it at least because of all your hard work in serving me for these four decades of service. Mm -hmm. But then he dies and God preaches his funeral and buries him there on the mountaintop and then hands the mantle to Joshua. Well, then debate occurs downstream about like what happens to Mo what happened to Moses, you know? Um, and this story comes along of how that when Moses dies, he is greeted by the archangel Michael, which is really also an ironic phrase used by Jewish scholars to begin with, because that's a very Christian phrase. But in, at any point, the archangel Michael um, and Satan shows up, the Hasatan shows up and begins accusing Moses of, of all things, murder. Well, of course, we all know the story that Moses had, in fact, killed a man 80 years before he dies, thereabout, and he buries him in the sand and, and Pharaoh finds out about it and, of course, pursues Moses and all that. Well, Satan keeps that against Moses, that God never dealt with that. And so as a result, he belongs to me. And Michael says, in short, the Lord rebuke you and takes Moses on up to heaven. Mm -hmm. um, as a way of verifying that Moses, despite the sin in his life, is in fact a true child of God. And Jude uses this as a story like we would use a, we would use this the plot of Les Mis to talk about redemption. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, or, or, or something, or something else along, um, something else along, something that's on Netflix right now is a redemption story. Uh -huh. And he just quotes it as if his audience knows what he's talking about. Right. Yeah. And his audience probably didn't know what he was talking about. But we have lost the connection over the years because we don't have the assumption of Moses in our Bibles. Mm -hmm. You know. And what I typically, what I, what I kind of engage, we'll come to Enoch here in a second, is that this is illustrative material. Yeah. Jude is probably one of the most well-crafted illustrative illustration-wise documents we have in Christian scripture because mm -hmm. he is he is popping with illusions in his text. Oh, yeah. 
you know, and it's things that you need to know, which always, I always fall back on the, the saying, know what you believe and why you believe it. Mm-hmm. We've got to know, as Christian people, we have got to know scripture. And Jude pushes us to know not just Christian scripture, but scripture, you know, scripture faith, because he looks at the story like, why wouldn't I use this illustration to prove a point about how God will protect those who have stayed faithful, but will judge those who are unfaithful, which then leads us to the first Enoch reference in verse 14. Yeah. You know, this, this legendary writing called first Enoch, supposedly from the biblical character Enoch who gets four or five verses in Genesis five, which is a, a beautiful story. I like to tell at funerals, how the Enoch was this in the middle of all this um, unfaithfulness was very faithful to God. And I, I craft this story about how God kind of walks out of town and says, by the way, it's time for you to, it's time for you to come on with me. And you know, steps up into heaven using a phrase from Luther. Mm-hmm. Um, and he lived 365 years. I think it was Gersterberger in his commentary said that that was a example of well-rounded living in his day. Maybe he actually didn't live 365 years. He was just a well-rounded person. Sure. But apparently that character Enoch somehow wrote four books. That, that show up over the centuries, much like, you know, much like yeah. the Bible itself, just kind of, they just kind of show up. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how that, um, that God is going to send judgment against those who have been unfaithful. And again, Jude is referencing this as if his audiences got pulled up on their, you know, they got Enoch, first Enoch pulled up on their phones. Right, yeah. And yeah. we look at this going, what is he doing? Is this like the Star Wars canon all over again? You know, I mean, why do I put Discovery in my Star Trek canon now, you know? Yeah, and, I, hadn't, I hadn't read the, all the extended universe stuff. Yeah, I didn't realize that I went to read the comic books now to know what's going on. All right, yeah. You know, um, but, but to Jude, it's no big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what it reminds us of is that, is that the canon, the, the, the canon, the official canon was definitely in flux for, for centuries, really. The understanding of scripture, I think, was as long as it is instructive to, to holy living, we can read it and, and treat it at least with some level of authority. Mm-hmm. Jude is the interesting one because he, he treats it along the same lines as Genesis and Numbers. Sure. Yeah. Which, which today can cause a problem, at least especially with your, your hyper um, uh, infallibility people. Yeah, and, you know the, the, the folks that want, that want Scripture to, it has to do something exactly this certain way. You know, and for some of us, we kind of go, yeah, but we got Jude. Right. And Jude plays by his own set of rules. And yet it's considered scripture. And if I'm not mistaken, it was the arguments kind of pattered out eventually about Jude because of his connection to Jesus. Whereas with some other books, it stayed, they stayed pretty consistent on their arguments. Uh, I, I am generally a little fuzzy on, uh, yeah. on canonicity, but I, I think that's generally right. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll refer friends of the podcast and, and listeners back to, uh, I think, my second episode. Yeah, my second episode with Mike Lacona in this series, okay. so kind of the third in the series that, uh, that, that got kicked off here, where Lacona and I are talking about differences in the Gospels. Mm-hmm. And, and he says very, very astutely, look, our, our understanding of the inspiration of Scripture if we're going to affirm the inspiration of scripture, which you know I, I, I think is a good and right thing to do. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If we're going to affirm the inspiration of scripture, our understanding, our idea of inspiration must be coherent with simply what we see in the Bible. And so if they are going to be 
differences in the gospels that you know indicate well you know after this after event a jesus did b in one book but after event a jesus went and did c in a different book or you know different people show up in different order at the tomb or temptations are out of order in matthew and luke exactly yeah yeah. or the the genealogies again and And so like it if if we're going to look at this and affirm as we should the inspiration of scripture then i think it is fair for us to affirm that well jude jude is doing something here he's citing something here that although we might have some issues with mm-hmm. jude's point is is perfectly justifiable the wicked will face judgment yeah yeah and for him to go to enoch first enoch as this uh, as this particular work is called mm-hmm. for him to go to first enoch which um, you know, for for folks who are watching this, I've got two yellow books uh, right above me, ah. uh, right here. The what in order to find this book, First Enoch, you can you can Google Old Testament pseudepigraphon. Pseudepigrapha starts with a silent p, kind of like false falsely attributed writing, basically. Mm-hmm. Old Testament pseudepigrapha. And if you type in the name James Charlesworth, it'll get you these two volumes above me. And that's a standard book to be able to read through all this stuff. Mm -hmm. It's a standard translation that um, scholars use to this day. You can find First Enoch and you can read this this discussion about the rebellion of of, uh, wicked angels. Yeah. Drawing from Genesis chapter six Mm -hmm. and all of this. And again, you can read that and it's weird. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know what Jude thought about that, but Jude was, I think, very fair to mm-hmm. say, hey, um, you know, in the story that you all know about, this wildly popular story that you all know about, guess what? You've, uh, you've got judgment on the wicked, yeah. whether it's people or angels, yeah. judgment on the wicked. And I think it shows, a consist- it shows the consistency of God throughout history. Yes, is that God will that God will that God will maintain justice and will punish the wicked. We see it in we see it in recognized scripture, but also in unrecognized scripture. Again, the lowercase s. This is a consistent theme of people of faith: is that we have to live a righteous life. Yeah. However, that however that is defined by by what we read, we have to live righteously for God. Yeah, I like how the consistency of God throughout history. Uh, that consistency, I think, is uh, it is a manifestation of His faithfulness. Yeah, I agree. God has punished, you know, Jude and, and Second Peter too. Uh, you know, with some of the yeah. themes that we've looked at here, as God has punished wickedness in the past, so He will punish wickedness in the present. Yeah. As God has been gracious and merciful for the repentant in the past, so God will be gracious and merciful in the present. And um, man, that's uh, that's a tough message to hear for the unrepentant, yeah. but it's a beautiful and hopeful message for the repentant. It is. It is. And I think that's what I think that's what Jude is actually doing more so than what I, I don't think he's focusing so much on the, the, the intruders as much as he's focusing on the, the faithful and, and giving them hope. God will do it. You avoid them and let God deal with them. John says something similar. Uh, Peter says something similar is that don't focus so much on the negativity. Focus on what God has done for you. And let God deal with the, the, the sinful, the sinful crowd. Yeah, the un, the, unre, the unrepentant, not just the the sinful, because we obviously want to extend mercy 
Sure. And grace to them is sinful, but to the unrepentant, to the to the those who refuse to forget to be to seek forgiveness. Yeah. Yeah. Rama like that. Um kind of the next thing I have wanted to mention was mm -hmm. and, and we might have touched on it some here in this uh in, in this section, or some of the unique contributions that these make to the sure. New Testament. Um if we uh, if we want to dig into that a little bit too. Yeah. What is it that think, these uh, letters do that uh, maybe others don't, or sure. at least not as well? I think the biggest thing that Second Peter does, um, other than because because like we talked about earlier, because there are some similarities between Second Peter and Jude, and I think Jude comes just a hair before Second Peter does, okay. chronologically speaking. I, I think in many ways, yeah. is that it shows the intertextuality concept that there's a there's a borrowing concept and an interpretive concept. Is that yeah. we must interpret Scripture in light of itself. Talk, yeah, F help us. Uh, kind of does that. Yeah, help us flesh out this phrase intertextuality. Sure. That's a phrase that you sure. and I are very familiar with. Familiar with not everybody freedom. is. It's true, and it's one that's becoming more popular in the last ten or twelve years. I, I think so, and I, I think that's a good thing. But yeah, help us kind of dig into sure. that. What to, what exactly do you mean by that? So the idea of intertextuality is that is that you know, Peter quotes a passage, and we look at it and go, well, "That's a little bit out of context." Mm -hmm. And Peter's quoting it in order to in order to justify a, a, a something about God. You know, or something about how uh, we might say, and this actually came to pass. This text is then was given in Joel 2, and Peter says in Acts 2, well, here's what God actually meant when, when Joel preached this passage. And it kind of helps us interpret text in light of text, in light of a scripture. Um, Jesus does this. Peter does this. Paul does this. You know, uh, and, and Peter, what Peter does specifically is that he takes Jude and he borrows, borrows, and I'm going to say it in scare quotes, he, 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 he finds something he's heard elsewhere and incorporates it in his writing to say, this is good stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, the other thing that Jude, that second Peter does really, really well is he validates Paul's writings as scripture. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he quotes, you know, he mentions our brother, Paul, um, depending on the date, Paul is most likely is most likely deceased by the time of Peter. Mm -hmm. um, but there's always been this, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Is he an anti-hero kind of concept? Is he like the Punisher? You know, um, <laughs> do we know? We, to some people, Paul is the, the saint of saints, but to some people, Paul is a scorned sinner. You know, in the first century, and Peter, you know, Peter, the guy that Christ gave the keys of the kingdom to, says he's our brother. He's an apostle. You should read his stuff. Yeah, and that's very fascinating to see in the first century. Um, that Peter's saying, listen to what Paul has to say, especially now that he's dead yeah, and can't defend himself anymore. Read his stuff, listen to what he has to say. Um, and then that carries on over into the second century when people are starting to debate even more broadly who was actually the, the true apostles and who weren't the true apostles. And you come across this line from Second Peter going, our beloved brother Paul. Well, obviously, Paul has to be on the good guy side. Yep. And I think that's also the lights go again. At, uh, I, I mean, I, like it, it, yeah, it's really not that big design. of a difference. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, that's, that's a, I think that is also very fascinating that Paul, that Peter argues for Paul's inclusion in Christian writing. Yeah. Yeah. As far as Jude goes, um, some things that Jude helps us do is, again, I think that idea of, of possibly early Christian preaching. Um, what's it look like? Because, you know, Jude is a short letter um, and it's very, but it's very punctuated. And I think that for preachers today, we can learn a lot from Jude and how Jude constructs his message in terms of the, 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 the movement of it, the, the, the quoting of scripture, 
the illustrated material that he uses, and also the call to what I call the, the mission or the call to action at the end of the book. Do these things to prove that you're faithful. I think that that's a really great example of Christian preaching. Yeah. Um, we also happen to see the idea of the early, I think a really good snapshot of the early ecclesial situation or church situation mm -hmm. of the first century. Okay. Um, it seems almost without fail that people begin falling away from Christ with, within just a few years of the churches being started. Mm -hmm. And how do we deal with this? You mentioned talking about the Didache. There's a, there's a, in by 125, there's a way to do this. There's a way to restore fallen brothers and sisters. Yeah. Um, we're not quite with Jude. We're not quite the global persecution yet, but Jude, Jude and Peter can see it from where they're sitting in their prospective houses. Yeah. And I don't know if they thought about what would happen if Christians fall away. The Hebrew writer obviously has thought about this, mm -hmm. you know, but they both talk about how Jude more so than Peter talk about how to restore fallen brothers and sisters. And we can see a church that is really dealing with not just what's what songbook do we like more than the other and fighting over colors of the carpet and that kind of thing. They're fighting. They're, they're debating, you know, Jimmy sold out our family. So his family wouldn't, we could live and that other family died because of what Jimmy did. How, what do we do with that? And Jude gives us just a, a crack in the door of what that conversation is going to look like. Mm -hmm. And again, also that idea of the more fluid nature of, of, of the canon of writings that come across this going, how authentic or how authoritative are we to take this? Mm -hmm. And if it shows up in the Bible, maybe we ought to read Testament of the, of the, of the Patriarchs and First Enoch a little bit, at least at least for um, for our instruction and guidance yeah. and validation of our faith, if, if nothing else. Yeah. No class that I have taken has opened up the world of Scripture to me better than Rick Oster's New Testament world class. Mm. And uh, that class was a whirlwind tour um, and, and, you know, comparable to a, a PhD seminar, um, oh, yeah. even though it was a master's level class. Yeah. That class was a whirlwind tour first half where we did um, you know, like Jewish backgrounds, like everything, literature, archaeology, mm -hmm. history, you name it. And then the second half of the class was you know, uh, Greco-Roman and pagan backgrounds, you know, archaeology, history, literature, you, you name it. And we, I came away convinced, the more I understand about the world from which the Bible comes, mm -hmm. the better I can understand the Bible. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's helpful, especially when you come across things like this, where he <laughs> starts talking about this <laughs> this guy named Enoch who gets just a, just a brief shout out in Genesis. And it's kind of, it, it's not necessarily cryptic. It's just short. It's just brief yeah. in Genesis. Yeah. Enoch was a good guy. He, he, he walked with God. Walked with God. God took him. And there you go. And, then, <laughs> and that's it. But when you get to this, uh, when you get to this kind of thing, you see, man, you know, this is, this is something else. I wanted to read the verses that you're talking about um, sure. from Jude that deal particularly with, um, you know, how do you, how do you deal with people who have come back to faith or who have left and, and are coming back? Um, <clears throat> he says in Jude verse 20, but you beloved build yourselves up on your most holy faith, pray in the Holy spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, look forward to the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life and have mercy on some who are wavering. 
save others by snatching them out of the fire and have mercy on still others with fear, hating even the tunic defiled by their bodies. Yep. And he ends with the ends with a short prayer there. That's that's incredibly pastoral for a letter that has had quite a bit to say about the dangers that await the unrepentant wicked. <laughs> this is an incredibly gentle and pastoral conclusion here. Yeah. Yeah, it's um it's fascinating. The reason why I began to fall in love with the book of Jude was not long after I got hired here full time, they asked me to go to the North American Christian Convention, which is a gathering of Christian churches and churches of Christ. And since it traditionally was in Cincinnati, you know, so I went with the school and and um, I got up one morning, second or third day of the co of the convention, and I looked down to the out of my 12th story window from downtown Cincinnati, uh, right across the street from the Duke Energy Center where we were, and there was a, a, a group gathering. I couldn't see what was going on, but there was a group gathering in front of the center. I thought, well, this is going to be interesting when I try to go into the convention center. So I get dressed and everything, go downstairs, walk through the walk. As I'm walking up the, the sidewalk, I notice there are actually two groups gathering. One on one side, one over here on this other side, again, across the street, and one in front of the Duke Center. And the, the people on the one side of the street, on the other side of the street, were protesting our convention. <laughs> but here's the, here's the catch. They were from a certain Christian organization. And they were protesting us because we were talking about the theme of the theme that year was the love of God from the book of Acts. Okay. And they had interpreted love of God to mean other things. And the group, here's the funny part about it. The group in front of the Duke Energy Center was the local LGBTQ organization who was protesting that group being there. <laughs> and so I'm looking at this and I was like, this is the, this is a strange thing. For a, I've been a professor for three days. You know, I've been on the job for three days to see this. Um, and so I walk in and I meet with my students. They go, they go to the coffee shop, which well, I'm surprised they can even afford this kind of stuff, but they bought coffee and water and bagels that kind of stuff and they began going out to the different to the groups and here's the funny thing they actually had conversations with the the lgbtq crowd and prayed with them and talked to them and 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 you know asked them to forgive the crew the crew the group across the street wouldn't even talk to my students hmm. they were convinced that we were that we were in the side that was wrong hmm. and then the next sunday i had to preach and i'm and for some reason jew just popped into my head yeah and I, so I, and I read these last verses that you read, which is actually my favorite passage from the book of Jude. And I'm like, this is the Christian witness, is that when we, we live in a way that shines Christ's light, and when it shines a little bit too bright on those who are unfaithful, we must, we must show them the same mercy that Christ has shown to us. Yeah. And there's so much of that that needs to happen today in the church, out of the church, across the planet. And here we have in this book that most of us refuse to read key ingredients to the Christian witness and the Christian mission. So, yeah, you might think it's in the canon for a reason, you know? <laughs> yeah, you might think. <laughs> yeah. Rob, as we, uh, as we wrap up this afternoon, um, is there a favorite passage or a couple of passages from Second sure. Peter and or Jude that you want to share with us? Well, since you read Jude, Jude 20 through 23, which is actually my favorite. Oh, <laughs> that's, that's why I'll close with this a little bit from, from Peter, from 2 Peter chapter 1. Um, he says in beginning with verse 20, first of all, you must understand this, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, 
because no prophecy came ever came by human will, but men and women removed by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And I think that encapsulates Second Peter's whole argument is that we must remember that we are living in a tradition, a stream of Christian faith. We're not making this up as we go. As, as Coelet said, there's nothing new under the sun. You know, that we are in a tradition of faith, a tradition of that's been guided by the Holy Spirit. It's going to lead us to the holy city someday. And that we need to stay, with, we need to keep our hands and feet inside the ride at all times. Mm-hmm. And just love being in God's spirit and being in God's church. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Rob, any last, uh, any last parting words as we uh, wrap up today? Well, first of all, thank you for having me today. Sure thing. It has been a pleasure to see you again um, and uh, to talk with you about uh, a passion that I have with scripture. Mm-hmm. But the biggest thing I'd recommend is read Jude and Second Peter a little more often. Yeah. Um, you might find some things that you've been, been missing out on your, your, your journey of faith because we're so quick to get, we get confused by some of the stuff that's going on. And just hear what they're saying, especially that last little bit of Jude, and be blessed by what he has to say. Amen. Amen. Rob, really appreciate your time today, sir. Thank you very much, Kevin. It's good to see you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.